0: don't use ChatGPT. Um, I think I've made this a thousand percent clear. And if you don't believe me, believe the CEO who said last November, do not use this for anything business
1: critical. Hi, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts.
2: And I edit Esther's stories.
1: We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT.
2: Don't forget about Google Bard.
1: Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean?
2: Yep, we've got it covered.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Targeting AI Podcast. On today's episode, we're speaking to Namurdi CEO, Jonna Till-Johnson. Jonna started out as an engineer at the beginning of her career and earned a degree from Johns Hopkins University. She then worked in journalism before going uh, to work for the Meta Group. From there, she worked as a CTO at Greenwich Technology Partners. In 2002, she started Nemertes, which she has been running ever since. Fun fact, she even ran the company from C for four months during the pandemic, which shows her adventurous side. At Nemertes, Jana's area of focus are cybersecurity, IT, and enterprise technology. Hi, Jana. Welcome. Hello, Esther. You did
0: skip the part where I actually worked as an engineer, though. Uh, I do want to stress that I didn't go straight from school to journalism. I took a detour into graduate school doing particle physics research and then took a job developing cybersecurity products for a bank. So I have hands-on experience in there as well. That's good.
1: Apologies for that. So let's get right into it. Um, So you obviously you worked an engineer. What made you decide to go from working an in engineer into consulting?
0: Uh, well, it was a pretty seamless decision actually, because uh, I worked in, as, as you mentioned, I was in journalism. I actually ended up running the lab testing program. So I did a lot of hands-on work there as well. and we would in our heyday, we were doing 16 lab tests per year. Uh, which is about one every, every three weeks. And the reason our lab tests were good was because we tested what actually mattered to our readers who were IT folks at large companies. And I realized that this challenge of figuring out how to make technology really work in the real world context is the thing that really motivates me. I'm always curious, you know, you can invent some cool technology, but to make it work, you have to really understand the environment it's supposed to work in. And that really became kind of the core area of interest for consulting. And that's the problem we continue to address as technology
1: continues to evolve. Are you saying that you felt that perhaps when you're in consulting, you're able to make more of a difference than in when you were actually in the field? Or
0: uh, Yes, but no. Uh, that is true. That's a true observation, but it wasn't what I was saying. Um, What I'm saying is it's one thing to build, say, a router and say it goes this fast and the packets go this way and this is how many packets it drops and this is how fast it can forward the packets and this is how many decisions it can make about forwarding the packets. But the real question is, so what? Why do I care? When would I want to forward packets versus drop them? what are the features I really need to make this router work in my environment? And that isn't something that you can figure out by engineering in a vacuum. That takes talking to the people who are going to use it to understand, well, what are you trying to use this router for anyway? Now, routers are bad examples because, you know, routers route. But in general, for technology, it's the business problems that are the most interesting and should should shape... How your technology evolves, and the problem is there's a gap between the people that develop the technology and the people who have the problems, and bridging that gap is what consulting is about.
2: All right, so Jana, um, AI obviously is so trendy and so hot right now, and we, we know the biggest trend is uh, is gen, uh, generative AI. But what is the biggest subtrend in AI that you're seeing now, other than generative AI, and then? Uh, within generative generative AI, what's the hottest, freshest, coolest sub trend?
0: I'm not sure I can really answer that, and I was kind of I, I was kind of struggling with those questions when you sent me the the lineup. I, I would say probably to answer the first part, the fact that AI is built into almost everything—that it's not a product, it's a capability, it's a feature—and I think people tend to ignore that. And all flavors of AI are built in. And for example, I was in one of our research studies, I was talking to somebody in an energy company and I said, you know, do you use AI? And he's like, well, yeah. I mean, we use a lot, we use generative AI. Here are some of the tools we have, but we also use AI in all of our cybersecurity products because it's built in. And here's where here's where it is in each of those products. And I think that the overemphasis on so to answer that first part of the question, the overemphasis on a discrete tool such as ChatGPT has led to a blind spot on how much AI is actually embedded in practically anything doing anything right now. Um, And I would say that that also sort of becomes the hot new trend in generative AI as far as I see there being one. Frankly, I think generative AI is overheated, so I'm not sure I can come up with a hot new trend that's even hotter. But but to the extent there is one, I think it's how it's getting built into ordinary business processes and not, you know, not the oh, my God, it's going to take over all of our jobs. You know, one of the interesting things our research is finding is that most companies believe that AI is going to actually increase the number of jobs at companies because this process of applying AI to the different business functions takes people to do that, which is actually kind of interesting.
2: Whatever happened to uh, automated machine learning and, and machine learning platforms and that whole nuts and bolts part of of, of creating uh, algorithms for business processes that was happening very strongly before generative AI?
0: Still happening, still getting built into almost every product. You know, five, ten years ago, people would be like, our product's cool because it has machine learning. Now it's like, our product, of course it has m- machine learning. How else would you imagine we'd do this? So it's still chunking along, just not as a discrete you know, area of focus at the moment.
1: Nice. What would you say is in what ways that you've seen in your research, as well as just talking to enterprises, is AI incorporated into cybersecurity? And what and some what are some ways that cybersecurity could or could not benefit from generative AI?
0: Well, I think it's already using it in a lot of cases. As I said, so a lot of the cybersecurity products are well down the path of using AI in general and generative AI as well. But where, where we see clients putting generative AI to work usefully is things that don't sound obvious, but are important, like doing things like creating incident response plans or vetting their incident response plans or documenting their security policies and processes and procedures. Because, you know, the the thing about generative AI generally is, it comes up with a lot of good stuff. It also comes up with a lot of nonsense. So you need editors to look at it. But for your average engineer or cybersecurity practitioner, it's a lot easier to look at something and say, no, I don't want it to do that. I don't want it to do that. But the rest of it's okay, Than to sit down from scratch and start to work through it. I was just at a conference, actually, where um, one of the universities was, doing, was studying how how people were using generator AI to write code and what, the, and the code that they were actually creating was kind of simple, but interesting. It was like coming up. Oh, oh, it was, it was business ideation, excuse me. And what they found was that the combination of humans and AI came up with the greatest number of possibilities, which in a scenario where you want to start the process with all possible possibilities and have a built-in process for winnowing it down, that becomes very useful. So, you know, your policy should cover all possible scenarios. Maybe the human is not going to think of all possible scenarios, but the human plus AI will. So so coming back to cybersecurity, anything with documenting policies and processes and thinking of the things we haven't thought of becomes a good use for it.
1: Also, I was going to, I was wondering, does Generative ai make i guess cybersecurity more difficult and meaning that does it create more loopholes for i guess cyber, cyber those in the field
0: yes but no uh, yes you know the more powerful ai generally becomes the more tools that hackers have at their disposal but here's the thing hackers weren't sitting around waiting for chat gpt to come out they've been using this stuff since <laughs> the get go as soon as as soon as anyone anywhere has a tool it gets grabbed and used for nefarious purposes. So I would say it's just right now it's enabling enterprises to catch up to the hackers a little bit.
2: Okay, so apologies in advance for this long question, but Esther basically wrote this question, so I'm so it's know. our fault. Yeah, it's my fault. <laughs> I tweeted a little bit, but so 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 Namrati sends out advisories and newsletters and your ideas and your thoughts and it's a it's a great newsletter i love that your little your little pieces i learn a lot and they're they're quite humorous as well Uh, um, but in may one of the advisors talked about uh turtles all the way down which i found out was the infinite regression syndrome and um so it's a problem enterprises face when they try to reduce bias in ai algorithms because it keeps going back in an infinite regression loop Uh, training them, I guess. So can you ex- expand on the problems in this area and the way that enterprises are trying to rectify them? Also, can I assume users need to test the beat Jesus out of both generative AI inputs and outputs?
0: Well, I'll answer that by yes, because it's always fun to answer a long question with a short answer. First of all, turtles all the way down. I can't remember the ma- mathematician, but let's just say it was Bertrand Russell uh, or a philosopher. It was the, the story is he was at a cocktail party with uh, a woman talking about, well, what is the universe based on? And she said, well, it's based on the back of a large turtle. And he said, yeah, but what is that turtle s- standing on? And she said, another turtle. And he said, but what's that turtle standing on? And she said, another turtle. And then he said, but what about below that? And she said, well, Mr. Famous pol- uh, Philosopher, it's just turtles all the way down. And so, turtles all the way down has become shorthand for, in, you know, infinite regress. Um, the reason I'm pulling that up is because essentially, if you look at AI generally, you've got you've got the inputs, the black box, and the outputs. Okay, uh, and whatever whatever you're feeding it with, whatever data you're feeding it with, it then generates a bunch of outputs as a result of whatever you fed it with. And when the field of inputs becomes very large and the field of outputs becomes very large, you're basically matching the inputs and outputs to see if there's a problem somewhere, whether it's bias or anything else. The problem is that starts to become a combinatorially huge problem. And so you can't simply have a person sitting there going, well, if we input a, A1, a A2, A3, A4, we get output, you know, B1, B2, B3, B4. That whole process of pattern matching the inputs and outputs becomes a problem that you need to start applying AI to. Oh, so now you've got AI number one, which is the thing you're testing. Then you have AI number two, which is the thing that's testing the thing that you're testing. Oh, but wait, how do you make sure that AI number two is actually doing its job and testing properly? Why we need AI number three to test the tester. And now we've got turtles all the way down. Um, And I will say most of the enterprises that I'm talking to don't view the problem that way. They say, well, we're good because basically what they do is they provide a limited field of data that is proprietary and then they test the output. They don't do the pattern matching input plus output testing that generates this whole infinite regress problem, which is fine because I'm fine with the idea that that if you really beef up the output testing, you don't actually need to do the input plus output testing. But the pro- the problem is as you expand your AI outside of that use of private data, the output then the outputs can then vary very much more wildly. And now you still need some form of AI to test the outputs, and then you need some form of AI to test the AI that's testing the outputs that, you know, and you get your totals all the way down again. So if you can, in a self-contained environment inside an enterprise, you're actually okay just doing manual tests to the output. But once you start getting past a certain size, you, you, you fall back into the infinite regress. And I think that's, that's the problem that people are only so, slowly starting to get their arms around.
2: One quick follow up, uh, which is not really related to reducing bias or testing, but if you're only using limited data from within the enterprise, whatever size—medium, small, large—how good can that data be if it's a small universe of data?
0: Oh, it can be great. It's actually much cleaner and much more pure. So, for example, the, the canonical example would be: I'm a law firm. I have been practicing for a hundred years. I've digitized all of my cases. I no 1000% the integrity of my lawyers the integrity of these cases all i want is that information to become usable to my legal team in the here and now i don't want any garbage from some other firm that did some case that was badly decided or whatever or i don't trust i don't trust the information so if you can be 1000% certain that your ai is only drawing from your cases you can still walk into the room and say effectively computer Tell me all the cases that might bear on the case that I have right now, all the cases we've ever done that might bear on the case I have right now.
2: I get that. But what if you're a smaller business and you need to, you know, license uh, GPT-4, right? You need need knowledge outside your small business's boundaries. Uh,
0: Then you're kind of screwed because you cannot if you can't count on the value, the accuracy of that knowledge. And I don't know about you, but I run a small business and we don't, we don't use data that we can't trust. Full stop. So you don't use chat, <laughs> Uh We do, but we feed it. When we do, we feed it with our own stuff and we edit the crap out of it. And it turns out that it's le- it's less work to do it right the first time than it is to babysit ChatGPT to do it accurately.
1: That uh, was what I was going to say. I was going to say, is it even worth it if you have to? go around and start um, editing it. But I do also to just to follow up on that last question, because if as an enterprise, you need to go outside your own private, I guess, entity. So how do you really solve that problem of AI, 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 AI? Or is there a solution?
0: Uh, well, don't use ChatGPT. Um, I think I've made this a thousand percent clear. And if you don't believe me, believe the CEO who said last November, do not use this for anything business critical. He's been a thousand percent clear on that. Um, this is not, you know, uh, Chat ChatGPT has been abused horribly. Uh, I'd I'd have to to answer your question. I'd have to know the specific issue that you're talking about. Like under what circumstances does your small business need data that might not be at all accurate and is going to be making business decisions based on some combination of data it can't trust? I, I don't know. Right. I really don't. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like if you think about the the best use of chat GPT at the moment, it's writing really bad term papers. Okay, because essentially you just say, chat GPT, please write this term paper and it will go up, go out and make up footnotes for you that are footnotes to articles in journals. The footnote doesn't exist. The article doesn't exist. The journal doesn't exist. But damn, that looks good. And if you're doing this for a lazy, you know, high school science teacher or a lazy college science teacher, that's good enough.
2: But what about writing really good emails to a company invoices? Uh I've, I've well, done that. I've seen that. That's really good.
0: Uh, you still don't need ChatGPT for that because to be perfectly honest, word has that.
1: All right. So pivoting a little bit, right? What are your thoughts, um, especially as we speak about generative AI, ChatGPT, what are your thoughts about government regulation? So I think there's two
0: things to think about. The first one is you'll always have to ask who benefits from regulation. And it's always the incumbents. So if you think about what Elon Musk and Microsoft and Google are all trying to do here, they're trying to draw a line in the sand that says everybody else has to prove to the government that they're at least as good as we are now. Uh, and so while they're busy proving stuff to the government, we can forge forward and do more stuff and innovate. So it's just basically a way to hold everyone else back and buy themselves some more time to innovate faster. So you've always got to be very cautious when the incumbents are arguing for regulation because they're never going to ask for regulation that they can't meet. They're going to ask ask for regulation that their competitors can't meet. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is a lot of the regulation that's happening is looking at inputs and algorithms. And as we've talked about, I think most of the importance is looking at the outputs. So Sean, you mentioned one of our Nemertes advisories talking about, uh, you know, one of the ones that got the most uh, the most feedback was something called gas station heroin AI in you. And, you know, the basically the point there is People aren't aware of this, but gas stations will sell random unregulated supplements because the FDA doesn't regulate supplements. And people the supplement manufacturers have started using AI to take something like heroin, twist a molecule slightly so it's no longer officially heroin and therefore is no longer illegal, and selling it. And so you're buying this supplement, you have no idea, you know, it's actually one molecule south of, of heroin, and it may be incredibly toxic, but you don't, you can't have no way to know that. Well, the only way to fix that is not to say, well, you can only, you can only look at these molecules, i.e., regulate the inputs, or you can only use these algorithms, i.e., look at the algorithms. The way to fix that is look at the output and go, hey, is this thing toxic or not, and regulate the output. And that's the real problem here, which is you really need to be talking about regulation in the sense of prove to me that your that your output is not toxic, does not have bias, will not kill people or hurt people, will not suddenly become wildly racist. Prove me that. I don't care what your input is and I don't care what your algorithms are. And most regulation for all sorts of reasons, you know, most people don't want to think that way.
1: Do you does that mean that you think like for example open ai CEO going in front of in front of congress mean like well you, you know kind of turning the tables on, on them do you think it's all an act then cuz you kind of mentioned well they're not going to act regulation that they can't meet right so is this all just an act where you have like the ai pause and everything right is it I, I, I wouldn't call it an act but I think uh,
0: I think there is You know, I'm not going to accuse anybody of bad motives, Um, certainly people I don't know. So I I wouldn't say it's an act. I think everyone can agree that there is great potential for AI to do great harm if we don't pay close attention to it. But I would say that they're being disingenuous in the solution that they're proposing, knowing that at the very least, what it'll do is disempower uh, competitors and empower them. And, you know, the the CEO of OpenAI may be legitimately thinking, hey, I am a good and honest person, and I do not want to do bad things, so I just need to keep my competitors out of the way so they don't do bad things, because I know they will, while I go and do everything that I deem is necessary. And the problem with that is he's essentially saying, all the effective regulation should come from me, and it's not really regulation, I will self-regulate, and I'll just throw boulders in the path of my competition.
2: I agree with that. I see everything you're saying. But meanwhile, quietly, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is to me doing some quite nuts and bolts enforcement of, of biased and inaccurate algorithms, let's say in lending, let's say in, in consumer finance. And um, it seems to me that that's quietly happening and probably more effective than, than waiting for some legislation five or eight years from now. So have you, you know, picked up on that FTC regulation stuff?
0: I have not. I have not. But what comes to mind is you're saying that, you know, I, I'm listening and I'm like, look, the real problem with that is, for example, bias in lending. It doesn't matter whether the bias is coming from a person or an algorithm. So I don't really care about knowing the ins and outs of your algorithm. If I can prove that, you're, that your lending is biased, That's the problem right there. The problem is not that you used AI to generate it. The problem is you've got biased lending. The problem with that is very few people or there are very few ways to prove that something is truly biased, Um, which is, you know, it may look like to a normal human being that something's biased, but there's people can always come up with legitimate excuses for it. And I'm just pulling that out of the air. So it's it's kind of like my example with gas station heroin. It's easy for me to say, oh, well, the FDA should just regulate supplements. That's an absolutely enormous overhaul of a business practice that doesn't exist. And so it doesn't matter whether they're using AI or not. The point is people really shouldn't be selling gas station heroin, however they got there. But changing a regulatory model to actually embrace that and seriously try to address it is... It has nothing to do with looking at the looking at algorithms or AI even specifically. So I guess what I'm saying is to the extent that effective, le- effective regulation is looking at outputs, it should be doing that regardless of whether the outputs were generated by AI or some other mechanism. And to the extent that it's limited to looking at AI, it's not going to be very effective.
2: Well, I would say that the FTC, Esler's written about this a few times, but the FTC um, is, is looking specifically at the algorithms and what the what criteria they're using,
0: but that's exactly the problem. You know that that comes back to the problem of if you have a small finite number of criteria. Okay, great, you can you can make a decision like that. But if they're using very large numbers of criteria, now you need you can't really just manually look at that. In fact, if the number of criteria could be infinite, then.
2: Well, they're probably using AI to do it, hence the turtle. Yeah,
0: we're we're right back to the turtle. So that's the other (laughs) issue. And the bigger issue, again, is I don't care. Like, as a consumer, I don't care. What I do care about is that my my approach to lending is absolutely demonstrably fair. I don't care how many variables you used in getting to that. I don't care whether you used AI or a chipmunk on a wheel to figure out whether to lend to me. I just want to be sure it's fair.
2: I hear you. Okay, so I have another question, disconnected, unconnected to this one. Um, so, uh, John, John, one of the ways you and I first connected, well, actually, the way it was I was doing a story on digital twins. Um, I usually ask Esther to do these stories, but I had to do it, and um, that, was about a, that was about a year ago. And so, first of all, I mean, for our our audience, what what are digital twins, and how do they use AI technology, but more importantly, how has digital twin technology advanced, let's say, in the past year?
0: Um, so digital twins are exactly what they sound like, which are virtual representations of things or people. And people are most interested in virtual representations of people. But actually, things are more interesting. So, for example, you could be virtually representing an entire supply chain or a, a, a bolt that goes into an engine so in that sense, they're almost like simulations, but they carry a lot more ability to manipulate them together. And that's where the AI comes in. Because let's say I am the digital twin of a Bolt and you are the digital twin of the engine that the Bolt is added to. The AI can figure out all the possible ways that it could go wrong, that the connection would be used to do digital twins stress testing. So really the way to think about AI plus digital twinning is that it that it's the glue that helps digital twins interact with each other in the virtual world. Um, second half of the question was what interesting things have happened in digital twinning? Uh, what I've seen really over the past year is probably the most interesting thing is the digital twinning has moved out of some of the more straightforward applications like the one I just gave you and into more complex applications like literally modeling supply chains. There have been announcements about being able to model entire supply chains. And, you know, combining with AI to solve some of the big, interesting problems like, you know, climate change modeling or things like that. So I'd say it's been growing in its ability, it being digital twin technology, has been growing in its ability to address complex systems and to be combined across the board with, with other digital twinning approaches. So it's kind of in that, it's in that stage where The core idea and proof of concept had been fleshed out, but now it's really expanding to closer to a real production solution in lots of different areas.
1: So it kind of sounds like it's more like AI to speak because, I mean, I'm almost like two years in this role, right? So a lot of times what I've kind of noticed is that AI became kind of like an idea. And now we're in the, oh, this is the useful stage. So is that what you're basically saying with Digital Twin? We're now finding more uses for it?
0: No, I think we found the uses. I think it's more that the capability, you know, it's easy enough to say, "Oh, if I could simulate every piece of a PC motherboard, for example, I could simulate how this motherboard responds to heat and cold." You know, it's the same same problem. There's lots and lots of problems like this. If I could simulate every single molecule in the air, I could predict the weather perfectly, right? Um, it's just that doing that is computationally impossible until we get to quantum computers, which is another conversation. Um, so you can you have the idea, but you're not able to do it. And I'd say digital twinning has moved farther on that spectrum of, you know, it's able to actually do things for more complex systems than it was even a year ago.
1: So going back to generative AI, obviously you have said you think it's more of a hype than it's. Um, it's it's overhyped basically is what you're saying um with the enterprises that you they <laughs> that you you've spoken to what have been their reception like how receptive are they to things like technology with generative ai not just chat gpt but like other technologies out there and what ways are they thinking of integrating it into their systems
0: let me first clarify i'm not saying it's overhyped i think it's more the case that pretty much every it person you know, almost every IT person knows, has known for 20 years, the potential of AI generally. Um, and if we didn't, there are wonderful science fiction writers out there and movies and things like that, they, they get across the general idea. So people that care about this stuff have understood its implications for a couple of decades. What's happened is people who don't spend all their time reading science fiction novels and watching science fiction movies suddenly went, oh my God. And that's it's hype. I wouldn't say it's overhyped. It's just like the, the big world suddenly caught up to what a handful of technologists understood to be the case. So that's, yes, there's hype. Um, but it's not, That's this is a, as AI comes into its own, it will be a very big game-changing thing, which brings me to what enterprises we're talking to are seeing. I'd say the ones that are dealing with it most successfully are the ones who already had large and successful data analytics teams that have been thinking about, you know, machine learning, data analytics, sophisticated algorithms for data for years. And now generative AI goes and adds to the pile and maybe they have to hire a few new people and maybe they can offer their companies a few more solutions to problems that weren't solvable a year or two ago. But really, it just fits into a functional center of excellence or organizational structure within the organization where enterprises are wrestling is if they don't have an organization that's already dealing with that kind of stuff, they should, but they don't. So then that, then, then it's like, well, where does AI fit? How do we get people up to speed with it? If they already have somebody who's dealing with data analytics, AI is just another powerful weapon in the, in the, you know, in the arsenal. Um, or paintbrush in the, you know, in the portfolio or whatever you want to call it. But the ones that are struggling are the ones that don't have that organization. And so they have no place to put the paintbrush because they're not even painting.
2: So this is a, you know, big open-ended question. But what do you think would be the next big ripple in the AI universe Not that's not generative AI? What's what's next? We've seen how generative AI has disrupted everything whether you like it or not, it, it certainly disrupted the media news cycle for about AI. Um, but um, because it's so popular on a mass consumer basis as well as an enterprise basis, but what's going to be the next thing in AI? Because we used to talk about metaverse if you remember earlier last year, right? And then people talked about multiverse, metaverse. Well, it's the, the same. AI. It's I'm the first,
0: same thing. I mean, All Meta has right. meta's coined the metaverse. Well, they didn't. They actually stole it from Snow Crash. But yes. Yeah. So
2: is, is Metaverse going to make a comeback? Is that the next big
0: uh, thing? Uh, yes, but no. I mean, I do think the Metaverse never went away uh, and it will continue to be something that people pay attention to. It's just that it's in the whatever the Gartner calls the slough of despond in their you know, hype cycle. From my perspective, where I think life is very interesting is when people are combining AI and quantum computing because they solve two different categories of problems. And that becomes very interesting indeed, because for example, I think one of my advisors you may have seen talked about how the Swedes, or maybe that was before I added you to the list, but the Swedes actually were able to break one of NIST's uh, quantum proof cryptographic algorithms, by applying ai as kind of a sidekick and essentially what they did was the ai was looking at changes temperature fluctuations in the device to figure out pattern matching it's a bit like figuring out what you're typing based on the sound of the keystrokes on the and the typewriter but ai was able to use the information gleaned feed that back into the quantum computing and they broke it And NIST got very quiet and hasn't had much to say about that. And that happened back in March. And so I think there's going to be lots of scenarios where AI plus quantum intelligently rolled out is going to be bigger than, the sum is going to be bigger than either of the two parts. I think that's super cool, by
2: the way. Yeah. So we'll talk about that next year.
1: Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jana. I think that's all we have for you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us on the Targeting AI podcast. Um, For our listeners, you can find more of Jana's work on themerties.com. You can find more of Sean and Maya's work on Tech Target's news website. Thank you guys for joining us. Have a great day. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the TechTarget News website.